So I hope you've had a good past few days. I hope you're having a good, um, I guess, landing to the year. Maybe not. I don't know. If you're not, then I'm sorry about that. But I hope it's been a time of rest and uh, reflection and maybe some rejuvenation. It's kind of arbitrary whenever we decide years are ended. I don't know of anybody that said uh, December 31st needs to be the last day of the year. But somebody decided it way back and we all stuck with it, and that's fine. Uh, I like the end of the year always. I like being able to sit back and take stock and reflect. Obviously, it's good times. A lot of times people spend time with their families and things like that, which is more limited this year than in past than uh, uh, the typical years. But even still, I know a lot of you have been able to connect with family or spend time uh, resting. We had some family visit us a few days ago, and they, uh, they of course, brought some gifts to share with uh, relatives that live up uh, up here in the Northeast. Unfortunately, they left the gifts in their vehicle overnight, which meant the next morning they did not have any gifts. Uh, nor did we, because some of ours ended up getting in there too, and uh, so they were gone. And that was pretty tough. Judah, I mean, not, not for those of us who were grown-ups, like, well, that's, that's a bummer, and, you know, you hate that, but go file the report and see if insurance will recoup some of it and just keep it moving. It's, it happens. But Judah asked me, she said, why did those people take our presents? They weren't for her, by the way. I think she, was, she wasn't too emotional about it. She'd already gotten hers, but one she was going to give was ones that were in the car. And I thought about it. I mean, what are you supposed to say about that? So I guess I could have told her, uh, well, economic inequities breed scarcity and that scarcity and joblessness in a year like this with a pandemic and all that creates all sorts of stress and strain and desperation, which in some cases leads people to commit crimes like theft and robbery. And uh, of course, the resale market on some of the items like through the roof and with the internet and all that you can resell stuff that you steal pretty easily you don't have to go to a pawn shop anymore and do that I guess I could have told her all that stuff but she's three so I just told her the truth and I said some people are selfish that's what it is you know we all have reasons for the stuff we do the bad stuff we do those people did a bad thing the other night robbing somebody I do bad stuff too I shouldn't and shame on me when I do I've always got reasons for it that I tell myself or I may tell you if you call me out on it. But at the end of the day, the reason why we do bad things, the reason why we commit sin, let's just go ahead and use that word, because we're selfish. I'm thinking about me. I'm not thinking about you. I'm not thinking about my wife or my kids or my neighbors or my, my brothers and sisters in Christ or that lost person who doesn't. Whenever I do the wrong thing, it's because I'm being selfish. And that's where the bad stuff comes from. Jesus came and he says here in Mark chapter 10 and verse 45 that he came to fix up what's broken. That's what that word in verse 45, a ransom. A ransom is what you pay to bring someone out of bad things. Jesus came to ransom us, to ransom us from condemnation, from death, from hell. He came to ransom us from all that stuff but it's interesting in this context, the story that's told here and the statement that Jesus makes brings us to this, I would say, core problem that so many of us, I would say all of us, battle with every day. He came to ransom us from our selfishness. And what he said that he did to do that um, is both something that's a gift to us and it's an example that we're supposed to follow. So the setup of the story is great, right? 
All the disciples are together. And James and John, actually Matthew records a little extra detail that it wasn't James and John personally who came to Jesus. They got their mom to come ask Jesus to let them sit, one on Jesus' right hand and one on his left, to have the positions of prominence and power and greatness. Now, they didn't really do anything as far as we know throughout the Gospels that would have merited this, uh, but they thought they were important enough. They thought they were special enough that they deserved to have that good seat, that they deserved that kind of special treatment. And so uh, they asked Jesus, we want some special treatment. Now, all the other disciples, obviously, as the text says, are indignant about this. They're upset. How dare you? How dare you ask for the best seat? We're all 12 in this thing. You don't deserve that any more than the rest of us. You see, uh, these guys had the same problem that we struggle with. They were selfish. James and John were selfish to ask for that special spot. The rest of the disciples were selfish to be jealous or envious about them asking for that spot. But anyway, Jesus handles it in a brilliant way, duh, of course, like he always does. And Jesus says to them, well, are you able to drink the cup that I'm going to drink from and be baptized, immersed in the immersion that I'm going to be immersed in? And I guess they thought, well, we know you're the Christ, you're the king, you're going to rule the world. So yeah, that sounds like a pretty good cup. We'd love to drink from that. I love king cups. And whatever immersion you're going to be immersed in, oil or spices or cool or warm, whatever kind of water, we're in. Like, we'll get immersed in that. Whatever kind of bathed in, whatever glory you're going to be bathed in, we're happy to do that. Yes, Jesus, we are able. It'll be so hard, but we'll do it. And Jesus, uh, here's a mountain puts him on record with that. And he says, well, truth is, like that's the, those aren't my chairs to give. Even Jesus wasn't self-centered enough to say, I have the right to say who's gonna sit on my right hand and my left hand. You know, that seems like a pretty reasonable thing. If you're a king, you get to decide who's gonna sit on your right and who's gonna sit on your left. Jesus says, I'm not gonna be that selfish. Ultimately, it's my father who's making those kinds of calls. But what he does call him to is to see how they need to think about themselves. Really, the, the question wasn't a question uh, well, it was a question to call them to see themselves more clearly. He says, you know, people in the world act like y'all are acting right now. They're selfish. The leaders of the world, they try to get on top. They try to rule. They try to get the most. They try to be in the best position possible. But it's not supposed to be this way among you guys. Whoever would be the greatest must become the servant. And whoever would be first among you must be last of all and slave of all. What? That's opposite, Jesus. Look, if you want to get yours, you got to get yours. And if that means breaking into somebody's vehicle, if that means being a little mean to somebody on the job, if that means disregarding someone else's emotional needs because you got to take care of yourself, then so be it. Jesus says, no. No. That's not it. And they say, well, why? That's hard. That's a hard calling that you're putting us to, Jesus. He says, I know. The reason, he says in verse 45, verse 45, the first word there, for. For is the answer to why. For is, this is, this is the because. This is the reason. For I, the Son of Man, which by the way, I know we read Son of Man, a lot of times we think, oh yeah, yeah, Jesus, one of us, he's a Son of Man, just like you and me. Well, that is true, that is true. Uh, but actually, the term son of man, when Jesus used it, was a prophecy from the Old Testament about the king who would rule over all the world. Jesus, when he says, for the son of man, he's saying, for the king of kings did not come to be served by the people that he was among, but to serve, to serve, and to give his life as a ransom 
for many, to buy us back from our selfishness, to buy us back from our sin, to buy us back, to put us right with whatever was messed up with us. That's what Jesus came to do. Jesus came to serve. And he calls us to do the same. Here's what I want to do. Next few minutes, I'm going to look at four key characteristics to Jesus' service. And I'd like this, for, I'll tell you what it's been for me. And I, it's benefited me in the past few days and weeks as I've considered this passage and considered uh, these things. And we're going to be, be saying primarily in the book of Mark, by the way. Um, these reflections have benefited me in this way. And I would encourage you to think of them in this way, too. Um, how well have I been serving like Jesus? How well have I been serving? Not how well do I imagine myself to have been serving. But I mean, really, how have I been doing with serving like Jesus? And how can I serve more like Jesus moving forward? My guess is, and maybe not, maybe you're good. And if so, then this is just maintenance. Keep on going. But if you're like me, some of the things we're going to notice for the next few minutes in the serving life of Jesus are things that are going to challenge you and make you think, oof. I haven't been doing that. I've been living like those selfish people of the world. I haven't been living like a selfless, serving follower of Jesus. If that's the case, don't despair and don't spend too much time in regret. Learn your lessons and make a plan for moving forward because that's what we're trying to do here. We're trying to be like the master, not dwell on how we haven't been like him, though we have to acknowledge that. We got to face that. But once we face that, we move forward to be like him. All right, so four key characteristics to Jesus' service. Go back to Mark chapter 1. Mark chapter 1. I'd like you to notice the first words of Mark's gospel account. There's a couple of things that are really neat going on here that, that I think highlight a pretty obvious but still important lesson. Sometimes the obvious lessons are the ones we forget about the easiest. All right, Mark 1, starting verse 1. The beginning of the good news or the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written... In Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Make ready the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. The very start of the good news about Jesus. Well, what is it? There's a couple of things that are going on here. One, he's introducing a character named John the Baptist who was a, a very much a servant. Um, a humble man, and we can talk more about him. We're not going to. Anyway, uh, it's a prophecy about John from Isaiah chapter 40, about how John would come and proclaim, hey, the Lord is coming, and you better get ready. And John would do that. He would go and tell him, you better repent. The Lord's coming. He's coming near. You better get ready for him. And that's what he did. Um, and that's the prophecy that's being spoken of here. There's something else interesting going on here, though. He says, this is the beginning of the good news of Jesus, the Son of God, the Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet. Uh, some have said that, okay, this is just about the quotation here. The tricky part about that is half of this quotation in Mark 1, verses 2 and 3 is from Malachi, chapter 3, and the other half is from Isaiah. So some are like, oh, well, maybe Mark just got mixed up, like he forgot where the quotation was from, and I suppose that's possible, pretty unlikely, I'd say. He didn't get mixed up about other stuff. Uh, some have suggested actually what, what Mark is saying is the sentence reads like this, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet. In other words, the whole story I'm about to tell you, you already kind of know it because you read the book of Isaiah. And all I'm telling you is the fulfillment of all the stuff that Isaiah wrote about. As it is written, and then he quotes a couple of Old Testament passages. Here's why that's significant. When you read the book of Isaiah, it talks a lot about the Messiah. 
And uh, they're actually some of the most famous passages. Even if you're uh, tuning in this and you're not even a Christian, but you've just been around pop culture references and Christmas movies every year, you've heard some stuff in Isaiah. You know some biblical prophecy. For unto us a child is born. Unto us a son has been given. Or uh, Isaiah, that's from Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. What about Isaiah chapter 7 and verse 14? The virgin will conceive and will bear a child, and his name will be Emmanuel. Those are just a couple of references, but actually the book of Isaiah is filled with stories about the Messiah. But here's the interesting the story always that Isaiah told and that Mark is about to tell is of how the Messiah has not been with us for centuries at that time when Isaiah was writing. For all of time. We were lost and we were in sin and we were dying, but one day, the Messiah will show up. And whenever he would show up, he would promote justice and peace, Isaiah 11 and Isaiah 32. Whenever he would show up, he would suffer as one of us, Isaiah chapter 50. Whenever he would show up, he would be actually in the streets and he would be a gentle, quiet sort of person. Not the kind of thing you might expect of a domineering kind of leader like people of the nations. But he would be tender and bind up what's broken and fix it. Isaiah chapter 53 talked about that people would see the Messiah, but they wouldn't understand him. They wouldn't recognize him. Okay, what's the point? Here's Isaiah's message. One day, the Messiah is going to show up. The Lord is going to show up. He's not going to stay far away and look down on us and be like, man, y'all better get it together. I mean, what's wrong with you people? I keep sending you prophets. I gave you the Torah. I created a good world. Y'all keep messing up. What's going on with you guys? That's not what the Lord would do. And actually, the part that he specifically quotes from here in Isaiah 40 is a story about God coming to comfort his people. You're in trouble. You're lost. You're hopeless. Here's the comfort, though. The Lord is coming. The Lord is going to show up. Okay, I know this is obvious, but I think it's something we need to say out loud. Jesus' service was characterized by the fact that he showed up. Jesus could have stayed up in heaven living his nice life, doing whatever he was doing up there for all of eternity, but he said, nope, I'm going to show up for these people. And then he did. I mean, that's kind of the meta point throughout all the service of Jesus was that he was actually there in Capernaum. He was actually there to touch the leper. He was actually there to see women when they were crying, when their children had died. And he was, he was there. He showed up. If I want to serve others, I got to show up. Boy, it is super easy to not show up for people. Especially now, right? I mean, it was easy to not show up with people before. Now, we got all kinds of reasons to not show up for people. And yet you know that you can't accomplish any kind of service for another human being unless you show up for them. Uh, think, about, think about how, I know I feel this, I'm sure you have. You know how many people are like, man, I used to really be encouraging that brother or sister doing this or that for them. But now it's just ripped away. And by the way, sometimes we're absolutely prevented from showing up, so don't get me wrong here, okay? It's didn't to beat any of us up on that. But I will say, we know we cannot serve like we want to and like we wish we would and like in optimal conditions we would when I'm not in someone's presence. I can't see when they're hurting whenever I'm just picking up a phone call. I can't, I can't tell from their body language or kind of how they're slumped over or whatever that they're in pain. I can't see those tears because they don't turn their screen on when they're on Zoom or whatever the thing is. You know what I mean? Because we're not showing up. I got to be able to show up for others. I got to be there for you to serve you. And by the way, we might say, okay, well, but some of that's prevented. You know what? There were times when people were prevented. 
The Apostle Paul, one of the best servants of Christ and of other people. You know, there's a period where he couldn't show up for anybody. Paul loved doing that. He would go to cities. He would go visit churches. He'd go visit them again. Then you know what happened? He went to prison for preaching the gospel. Couldn't show up anymore. Or could he? You know what Paul would do? He'd sit down and pray for folks. It's interesting to me whenever you read the, the prayers in Paul's epistles, which there's a lot of them in the New Testament, um, the richness of his prayers, in my opinion, expands in books like Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. And you're like, I wonder what's going on, Paul. You know what's going on? He was praying a lot more because he was in prison. He couldn't do anything else. So he was praying because he said, this is the I'm going to show up for my brothers and sisters in prayer. You know, if I'm not able to show up, for instance, for the assemblies of the saints, like Hebrews 10 says, in order to strengthen and encourage my brother. That's what it said, by the way. The reason we're told not to forsake the assembling of ourselves isn't because you need to, because otherwise you're going to be on probation with God. No, the purpose of assembling with the saints is to stir each other up to love and good works. Or we might say to serve, show up to be able to serve whatever we need for each other. I don't come here for me. I shouldn't. I mean, I guess I should in some ways because I know you're going to serve me. You're going to be there for me. But really, I should come to stir you up. But if I'm not able to, what am I doing? One thing I can do is showing up for you in prayer. That's going to take me actually getting outside of my own prayers, my own little locked-in closet, my own issues and my own problems. I need to show up for you. What's going on with you? Which means, by the way, I might need to check in. Hey, I've been thinking about you. What's going on? How are you doing? What can I pray for you about? Um, how about this? Just besides, just picking up the phone and calling somebody. Just saying, hey, I just want to see how you're doing. You, know, you can stay and just keep your phone off. You can stay away from everybody and not show up. That's an option, but you never will serve anybody unless you're willing to pick up that phone, send an email. Or you know what would be really super crazy? Write, write a little letter. That's what Paul did while he was in prison too. He wrote letters. Now I know we, Paul would probably be texting like crazy. I get it. Probably what's happening and all that. But my point is show up for each other. If we're going to serve like Jesus, we've got to show up like Jesus. That's the first characteristic of Jesus' service. He showed up. He did something. He took some action. All right, here's the second thing, though. Once you show up, and have you ever done this before? Where you're thinking about going to some event, maybe it's at a friend's house, and you're like, you know what? I want to get there too early, because if I get there a little early or right when it starts, I'm, they're probably going to put me to work, you know? I'm going to have to get them set up, because I know they never get things set up all the way. So I'm not going to, I'm going to wait until maybe 30 minutes, hour late, so I don't have to help. We don't want to put ourselves out. I don't want to have to give out that energy or, or do more work or whatever. Here's the second character. Jesus didn't just show up and just watch what was happening. Nor did he just serve in the ways that were most convenient or comfortable or nice for him. Jesus suffered personal loss for the benefit of others. Jesus suffered personal loss for the benefit of others. Whenever Jesus came to serve, the very first story... In Mark chapter 1 and in the Gospels, Matthew 4, Luke 4. First story of his ministry, which just as a reminder of the word ministry just means service. First thing he did, into the wilderness. Why, Jesus? Well, because he needed to be made like his brethren. If he was going to serve, he was going to have to be able to connect with us, understand us, be tempted and tested like us. Didn't just happen in the wilderness, by the way. It happened all throughout, but it especially happened there. A little later on, Jesus began his ministry. And Mark chapter 1 details how Jesus was casting out demons and preaching the gospel and healing the sick and all sorts of things. And actually, if you go down to Mark chapter 1 and uh, skip down to around about verse 34, it says, He healed many who were ill with various diseases, and he cast out many demons. And he was not permitting the demons to speak because they knew who he was. And then listen to the verse 35. In the early morning while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, 
and went away to a secluded place and was praying there. Why is that detail there? Why didn't it say Jesus was up praying? It was early, while it was still dark, to a secluded place. You know what Mark's hinting at? Probably what we would have already guessed. Jesus couldn't get a second alone. All the time, he had people, Jesus, Jesus, hey, my grandma's sick, Jesus, Jesus, I'm hungry. Jesus, I got a question. Jesus, always, all the time. The only time he could even get aside to pray, to pray. We're not talking about going to read the newspaper or, or game or whatever, just to pray. Jesus had to get up early in the morning to go off by himself. And then the disciples in the very next verse, they say, oh, hey, Jesus, we're looking. everybody's looking for you to do more stuff. They want even more out of you. And then Jesus said, well, I got to go to another town to help people there. And so he kept it moving. You skip it a little bit further down. As he was on this mission, and maybe this is good for us to read just uh, for now and for later. Look at verse 38. He said, let us go somewhere else to the towns nearby, to the towns, so that I may preach there also, for that's what I came for. Jesus came to preach to people in these towns. All right, well, on his way, he meets a leper at the end of Mark chapter 1. So he's, I mean, Jesus is, is making sacrifices, not sleeping as much as he'd want to, not be able to just hang out with his friends, not be able to do things to relax or whatever, not even be able to pray as much as he'd want to. And so he's on his way and he meets a leper. And the leper cries out, Jesus, have mercy on me. If you are willing, you can make me clean. And Jesus said, I'm willing. Be cleansed. He reached out and touched the guy. Which, by the way, wasn't really a loss because Jesus knew he was going to take it away. But socially, it was like, whoop! Touching a leper was not something you were allowed to do. It wasn't something that was accepted. Truly, it was not a kosher thing to do at all. Right? And so uh, he, he touches the leper, removes the leprosy. And then he tells the man, he says, hey, I want you to go. Show yourself to the priest, but don't tell anybody what happened. Because after all, Jesus came to preach in these towns. And Jesus knew that if everybody starts announcing all these miraculous, amazing things that happen, well, he's not going to be able to preach because there's going to be thousands of people looking for him to heal. And look, the guy did a wrong thing. He didn't do what Jesus told him. But I understand. It'd be hard not to. I'm sure Jesus understood too. Jesus was compassionate and merciful. But look at what happens here. Jesus, who was on this special mission, trying to do what he did, the man, verse 45, went out and began to proclaim it freely and to spread the news around to such an extent that Jesus could no longer publicly enter a city. But he stayed out in unpopulated areas and they were coming to him from everywhere. Not only was Jesus losing sleep because of his service, now, as he serves people, serving this man actually hampered Jesus' ability to serve in the ways that he intended to serve. You see what's going on here? Jesus was making some big sacrifices. Notice it says he was in unpopulated areas. Do you guys like being in unpopulated areas? If you live in New York City, I know you do not like that at all. But you know why? It's harder out there. On multiple occasions, when Jesus was in those unpopulated areas, he would look at his disciples and go, hey guys, we don't have any food. That's a pretty big issue. Jesus sacrificed the comfort to be able to go grab something to eat. Jesus sacrificed the ability to preach to more and more people, which is why he said he came. Because Jesus understood that serving others meant that he would suffer personal loss for their benefit. It wasn't just a lack of sleep. It wasn't just complicating his life, though. Jesus suffered a lot of social consequences because of his service. In, in the next few stories, Jesus would do things like he's preaching the gospel and offering forgiveness and healing people and teaching and all that sort of stuff. Here's the kinds of things people said about him. Look at Mark chapter 2 and in verse uh, 5. Jesus saw the faith of uh, some men who brought a paralytic to be healed, and Jesus said, Son, your sins are forgiven. Great thing. Great act of service for the Son of God to extend forgiveness and pardon to this man. But some of the scribes were sitting there and reasoning in their hearts, why does this man speak this way? 
He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? He's a blasphemer because he served. His service to his fellow man caused him to lose credibility with a lot of the religious leaders, which, by the way, meant a lot of people who listened to those leaders said, oh, that Jesus? I don't want to listen to him. He's a blasphemer. Skip down a little further. Jesus, as he served the sinners, Matthew the tax collector and his friends, as Jesus sat there befriending these people, serving them with his friendship and with his counsel and with his teaching and with his presence, as he served them, the religious elites of the time, at least, looked at him and they said in verse 16, why is he eating and drinking with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus' reputation took a hit, not only as a blasphemer, but as an associate with the wicked, because he served. Later on, they questioned his knowledge of Scripture, which is a big deal if you're trying to teach people about the ways of God. They said, you don't even keep Sabbath. And by the way, you don't even fast like we fast. What's wrong with you? Do you people even love God? That's the implication, by the way. Now we're challenging a man's integrity. You get the point, right? Everything that Jesus did as he served, and maybe one of the best examples is, is in Mark chapter 3 at the beginning. Jesus there in the synagogue, and the people, they knew, they were trying to trip him up. They brought a man with a withered hand, so he had some sort of disability with his hands with his arm. And, uh, and, and they were going to watch, see if Jesus would heal the man, or we might say serve the man on the Sabbath. That'd be a big violation. It wouldn't really, but that's what they thought. And so Jesus uh, looks at the man and sees the problem, and then he looks at the rest of the people, and it says... This is one of the only times it says this about Jesus. So he's filled with anger. Why? Because he saw what was happening. Here is godly service. Good things that are being done. And all people do is they see it and they try to use it as a trap to tear him down. Jesus suffered the loss of not only sleep, not only comforts having to be out in the unpopular, not only did he suffer the loss of being able to accomplish his mission of teaching and preaching in the way that he intended to, not only did he suffer the, the, all those losses, but he suffered the loss of just being degraded and derided and hated and looked down upon because he was serving. If I serve, I'm going to have to be ready to suffer loss for the benefit of others. Let me show you one more uh, loss that he suffered is in the end of uh, Mark chapter 3, verse 20. And he came home. He came home. That's where it's going to be good. That's where it's going to be cool with me. That's where I'm not going to suffer as much loss. I'm not in the unpopulated areas anymore. The crowd gathered to such an extent that he couldn't even eat a meal. Back to the not eating. Not only not sleeping, now he's not eating. He's suffering loss of hunger. When his own people, or your translation may say, and I think appropriately, when his family heard of this, they went out to take custody of him. For they, uh, for they were saying, he's lost his senses. Do you see what happened to Jesus? It wasn't just sleep and food that he was sacrificing. It wasn't just ease and comfort of being in the city. It wasn't just uh, being a, having a clear pathway to accomplish his mission. It wasn't just the respect of his neighbors that he sacrificed. Things changed with his family. And you can read this throughout the Gospels, by the way. His brothers looked down on him. They mocked him. They didn't believe in him. Why? Because he was serving. He was serving. And to be a servant like Jesus means that I'm going to suffer loss for the benefit of others. Husbands, how good are we at serving our wives? Or we say, you know what? That's a little much. I don't think I'm going to do that for you. Because that would cost me too much. I'd have to suffer too much. I'd have to sacrifice too much. 
wives. What's the limit where you say, no, 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 that's not fair. That doesn't make any sense. That's not, that's not reasonable for you. What about workers? How you doing on the job? No, man, this ain't fair. Like, I don't like getting treated this way. I don't like having to pick up that person's slack. I'm not going to do it. I'm going to go off on them. Or I'm just going to, hey, look, I'm not, my boss is ridiculous. I'm not. What about with your neighbors? No, I'm not helping them one more thought. They're just always, they're just bugging me and asking me for help with this thing all the time. And this friend of mine, they just won't shut up. They're just always talking, talking with all this stuff. And it's the thing again. And now, I mean, just, and I don't have the energy for this. And I don't have the time. I, I got, look, I got some Netflix to watch and I don't have time for this kind of stuff. You understand what I'm saying? To serve like Jesus is to suffer personal loss. Now, here's the caveat. I know you're like, wait a second. There's, there, look, I get it. There are times whenever Jesus would go away with his disciples, okay? So I'm not saying you don't need to be rejuvenated. You don't need to be, uh, you know, uh, provided for by what the Lord gives you. But I'll just tell you this. Even when Jesus went away to be on his own, people would show up and ask for more. And you know what Jesus never said? No, that's too much. That cost is too high. He didn't say that. He said, all right, let's do it. Because Jesus served suffering personal loss for the benefit of others. And shame on me when I say, no, 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 that's too much. I don't think I can pay that off. All right, third characteristic of Jesus' service. Not only did Jesus show up, and not only did Jesus suffer personal loss for the benefit of others, Jesus served the whole person. Jesus served the whole person. Uh, here's what I mean. And, well, maybe Let me start here. Some of us, we, you read the, the gospel of Jesus, and you say, yeah, Jesus served. When people were hungry, he fed them. When they were sick, he healed them. Whenever they were lonely, he befriended them. Whenever they were poor, he lifted them up. Jesus served. And I want to be like that. So what that means is, is my life is all about, I'm trying to feed people, and I want to like, get people more, like better financial resources, better health care, and that's what it's all about for me. And so maybe that means I'm going to do different stuff personally. Or maybe that means I'm going to really advocate for social changes that will deal with, I'm going to say it this way, immediate practical needs. Immediate practical needs. Because that's what Jesus did. Jesus came to serve. And look, these pages are filled with stories about him serving. Another person reads the story of Jesus. They say, yeah, yeah, yeah. But that's not really what Jesus did to serve. Actually, all those things were kind of not quite incidental, but they were definitely subordinate. Because he did say he came to preach. That's what he came to do. And whenever the paralytic came, he said, son, your sins are forgiven, not your paralysis and whatever debts you've incurred during your injury have been taken. No, no, like he took away the man's sins. And actually, there were times when people would ask for food and Jesus would say, nope, no way. And in Mark chapter 6, whenever, G whenever a crowd showed up, it said Jesus had compassion on them and he taught them. Many things. So I don't, think it, I don't think the service of Jesus is those immediate practical things, but the service of Jesus and the service we should be engaged in is the eternal spiritual needs. That's the kind of service that we need to be engaged in. All right, who's correct in that argument? Who's correct? Now I'll say, if it's I gotta pick one, I'm gonna go with the second one, I guess, because it is true that there, there were times Jesus neglected people's physical needs on purpose because there was something bigger going on. But I'll just tell you this. Really, both of those people have something going, and the problem is, is whenever you zero in on one or the other. Or you mix up the priorities. Right? The priority is definitely the spiritual and the eternal, because you know I can feed somebody every day, and then they die and go to hell. It's not going to help a thing. But you know what? 
preaching somebody the gospel all the time with my words, but never show them any kind of empathy, any kind of concern for their immediate practical needs, it might be kind of tough for them to hear my message. That's part of why Jesus was constantly doing the good that he did. Uh, So I'll come back to my statement. Jesus served the whole person. Now what that meant is Jesus actually got to know people. He got up close with them. He showed up. He made whatever sacrifices necessary to connect with them, and then he would serve them in their needs. Let me show you a couple of examples. Look at Mark chapter 4, the end of Mark chapter 4. Mark 4, verse 35, the disciples and Jesus are on a boat. And uh, the disciples faced catastrophe via a meteorological event that was risking their lives, that was about to kill them. Has that ever happened? Uh, Hurricanes, tornadoes, snowstorms, flooding, whatever. This stuff happens to people, forms of it in our day. Uh, So they thought they were going to die. And they cry out. They say, Jesus, Master, don't you care that we're perishing? You're not dealing with this. This is very immediate. And this is very practical. We're about to die. Do something. And Jesus didn't get up and say, hear ye the parable of the ocean. Like he didn't do that. He got up and he calmed the sea because he could do that. And by the way, we can't do that. But he could. And he stopped the sea and he stopped the waves. He took care of their immediate practical need that he had ability to deal with. But then notice what Jesus does next. He doesn't just say, Sorry about that, guys. I'm really glad. You guys okay? Everybody okay? All right, good. And go back to sleep. By the way, Jesus was asleep whenever all this started. You guys remember that's kind of a little funny bit in it. Anyways, look at what Jesus says there after this. After he served their immediate practical need, he says, why are you afraid? Do you still have no faith? He hit their eternal spiritual need, right? The very next story in Mark chapter 5, they, they pull up on the land. I'm sure the disciples were still shaken from the previous night and considering Jesus' piercing question that he asked them. They pull up and there's a demon-possessed man. He f- fires down the hill. He's naked. He's been chained up because he's possessed with demons. And he runs up to them and he falls down at Jesus' feet. And look at verse 6. It says, Seeing Jesus from a distance, he ran up and bowed down before him. And shouting with a loud voice, this demon-possessed man said, What business do we have with each other, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I implore you by God, do not torment me. Because Jesus had been taking care of an immediate practical need. He was getting that demon out of the man. You might even say this is one of those immediate practical needs that also is kind of an eternal spiritual need, sort of merged into one. Jesus was drawing this demon out. But I want you to see what Jesus did as Jesus was aiding this man, as he was serving this man. Notice how intent Jesus was to care for this whole person. Look at the question. Verse 9. He was asking the man, What's your name? What a weird question. I think if I was, I don't know, Bartholomew, I'd be like, can we do meet and greets after the demon gets out? Because this is a bad situation. We have. Let's deal with that. Why are we asking for this man's name? You know why? Because Jesus was trying to serve a person. Not, not just do a thing. Some of us, we just like doing a thing. I like just writing a check. I just like hand it to myself. I just like doing a thing. And then I feel like, oh, good, I serve. See, God, you notice that? Okay, I serve. All right, good. And I go on my merry way. No, no. To serve like Jesus is to serve people, to know people, to understand them, which is, by the way, a huge investment, which takes us back to it's going to be a lot of sacrifice and a lot of personal loss for you for their gain. The story actually goes on. Jesus extracts the demon, casts out the demon. And then all the townspeople, they come and they see, and, and if you look a little further in the text, it says they show up, and the man was sitting down, clothed, and in his right mind with Jesus. 
Jesus didn't just say, all right, you're free from the demon possession. Good luck. Going in goodwill to try to get some clothes. We're out of here. We got stuff to do. We got people to preach to. Well, look, Jesus did have people to preach to. But I don't know where that dude got clothes, but I got to imagine it came from somebody. I don't know if Jesus got all the disciples to give one piece or what the deal was. But somehow Jesus said, let's take care of this man's practical, immediate need. And let's take care of his practical, immediate need of some friendship here. And let's be here with him. But you know what? That wasn't it. Because the guy practically and immediately needed to get out of town because he still didn't like him anymore. And so he says to Jesus in the story, please, master, let me go with you. Look at what Jesus says to him. Look at verse 18, excuse me, 19. Jesus didn't let him go. This man might say, Jesus, I don't have any friends. You're, my, you're literally my only friend. And I don't know what to do. I, I need some practical help here. I need you to immediately address what's going on with me. Jesus said, no, you're not allowed. But rather go home to your own people and report to them what great things the Lord has done for you and how he had mercy on you. Jesus said, you have a spiritual need to go do some work for the kingdom. These people have some eternal spiritual needs and they need to know about the greatness of God. So you go and you preach that gospel. It's not just about the practical and immediate. It's about the eternal and spiritual. And that's the whole thing that was going on with this guy. One more example of this at the end of Mark chapter 5, or a little bit in the next story. Uh, a man comes to Jesus and says, my daughter's at the point of death. Jesus goes to help. And on the way, there was a woman who had a disease uh, that would have made her an outcast. Uh, and it was hopeless. For over a decade, she had been spending all that she had to try to be healed, and she couldn't. But she thought, I think Jesus can help me. If I could just touch his clothes. So she comes and she gets the edge of his garment. She was healed immediately. Well, Jesus sensed that. Her practical immediate need, at least one of her practical immediate needs, was taken care of. But boy, if that woman had just walked off, what guilt would she have carried for the rest of her life? Robbing Jesus? That's pretty bad. Robbing him of power. You didn't even have the guts to ask him for help. You just stole it without him knowing. He knew, but she might not have known that. And so Jesus says, hey, who touched me? And all the disciples say, uh, there's a huge crowd. Everybody's touching me. What are you talking about? He said, no, no, no. Somebody touched me because I felt the healing go. The woman comes. She falls down. She told him her whole story. Imagine somebody who was in quarantine for 12 years. Somebody who'd spent all their resources on doctors. Somebody who had gone through the pain and the shame and the fears that maybe God didn't love me. Maybe that's why I have this suffering. Maybe I have this ailment. And maybe I'm an outcast with God, not just with people. And what can I do? And how can I deal with it? And my family and my dreams of love and the family, all that stuff is gone. And how long do you think it took her to tell her whole story? And Mark says that. Says that he, she told him the whole truth. How long do you think it took her? Y'all know some people who it takes them a while to tell even a short story. Some of y'all, it takes a long time to tell a short story, but to tell an important story, that could have been hours. But here Jesus is. Listen, I don't know, it could have been five minutes. Whatever time it was, Jesus knew that she needed to let all this out. That she needed to confess the things she had done. That she needed to express all the pain and all the whatever she was dealing with. And then Jesus didn't give her a bunch of money to recoup the losses, though he could have. He didn't, he didn't do all kinds of stuff that I'm sure would have practically helped her, but he knew there was a deep need inside of her. So he said to her in verse 34, listen to it. Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your affliction. By the way, she already had been healed of an affliction. Jesus says, go be healed of your affliction. The deeper things that were going on inside of you, be healed of that. You see my point? Jesus took care of the whole person, which meant the priority was the eternal and the spiritual, but it included the practical and immediate. All right, who have you been serving 
in practical and immediate ways over the past year, the past few months? Who have you been serving in terms of their eternal spiritual needs in the past few months? If it's not many people, then it's time for us to be more like Jesus. It's time for us to step up. Now what this requires is, because someone may say, I don't know, I haven't been doing much, because I don't know what to do. Well, go ask some people what their name is. Go listen to some people tell you their stories. Go pay attention to the fears and the cries of your neighbors and your family members. Stop thinking about what you need and I got stuff to do and I'm a busy person and I've got important things. Listen, that's how the people of the world think and that's that's where that selfishness comes from is not caring for people, the whole person, what they're going through and what they need. If we want to serve like Jesus, we've got to come to know God and His goodness and His kindness and we've got to come to know others so that we can serve on every level, in whatever we can. Now listen, I can't stop the wind and the waves. I can't heal people of their disease, but I got something to give. And if I'm going to follow after Jesus, I need to learn to serve the whole person, whatever they may need that I have to offer. All right, last thing about the service of Jesus. The service of Jesus was personal service. It was tender. In the next story in Mark 5, there's, there's a, a crowd of people because the girl had died. That girl, he was on his way to heal. That important thing he was doing that he paused to be able to listen to this woman go through what she was going through and offer her help. He shows up the house and the girl is dead, but Jesus says she's not really dead. She's only sleeping. And because Jesus always suffered personal loss, the people laughed at him and mocked him as he went in to serve her. But Jesus put everybody out. And I've wondered about this, and it was great. There's this, uh, there's this good woman who came to me one time after I preached this, and she wasn't trying to be mean or anything, but she was correcting my mistake on what I misunderstood about this story. I don't know if she even thought of it that way, but I did. She said, you know, I think Jesus put everybody out because if you were a 12-year-old girl and there were like 50 people watching you come back from the dead, that'd be pretty tough. And I was like, that's a good point. That would be pretty awkward. Everybody out, except the parents and a couple of my guys. And once she gets raised from the dead, Jesus says, hey, don't get too excited. Give her something to eat. She's hungry. She just came back from the dead after all. That's not the only story where Jesus did stuff like that, though. In Mark chapter 7, there was a man who was a deaf mute. Jesus pulled him aside, stuck his fingers in his ear, spat on his tongue, weird stuff, said, be open. And the man could hear and he could speak again. In Mark uh, chapter 8, there was a man who was blind. And Jesus led him away from the crowd, not in the middle of everybody, not to make a spectacle out of it, but he tenderly pulled him aside, healed him. Same thing in Mark 9 with the demon-possessed boy. Here's my point. Jesus, at times when I'm thinking, man, you should be flexing a little bit. You need to be proving to people how great you are. You need to be proving, like showing all the doubters that they're wrong. But Jesus wouldn't do that a lot of times. His preaching was almost always very public. His teaching was more private, but... A lot of his miracles were real private affairs. Because Jesus wasn't trying to show anything, really. I mean, he did show us a lot. But he wasn't trying to show off with his deeds of service. Jesus was not driven by his own need for self-elevation or to convince you that he was great. Jesus was driven by a godly compassion to serve. Actually, that's what the book always tells us. 
Mark 1 and verse 41, when that leper came, it says that Jesus was moved with compassion. Not moved with the need to prove that he really was the Christ, though it wasn't going to do that. But he was moved with compassion. In Mark chapter 6, after Jesus had gone away with his disciples because his cousin and best friend and four, or one of his close friends and forerunner, John the Baptist, had just been executed, which was, of course, a foreshadowing of Jesus' own death. And Jesus said, let's go away for a little while. He took the disciples away, and then the crowds found him. And said he saw them, and this is how the story reads, if it was me. He saw them, he's like, dude, seriously, just, just a weekend. That's all I need is one weekend. Didn't say that. Mark 6 and verse 34 says that when he saw them, he was moved with compassion because he didn't see them as annoying punks who wouldn't leave them alone. alone. He saw them as sheep without a shepherd who needed some help. He was moved with compassion. Same thing in Mark chapter 8, whenever the crowds gathered so much that they could hear him teach, he pulls his disciples, he said, said, I'm I'm filled with compassion. Mark chapter 8 verse 2. I'm filled with compassion for the crowds. They've been with me for days and they haven't eaten. We've got to get them something to eat. And maybe one of the best examples of this is actually back to our text in Mark 10. After these two disciples had asked Jesus, hey, let us get the best seat. You know what? If they had been filled with compassion, they would have said, you know what? Thomas, he's always down. You need to give him something good, Jesus. He's always bummed out. Let him sit at your right hand. And you know, Bartholomew, nobody remembers him hardly. He's one of the 12, but nobody even talks about him. Let him sit on your left. They didn't have any compassion, though. They were thinking about Number one, they weren't willing to suffer the personal loss of maybe being the last chair in Jesus' kingdom. I got to get the first chair in Jesus' kingdom because their compassion didn't drive them to offer any kind of loss. They weren't willing to show up for their brethren. They weren't really thinking about anybody, any other people. They certainly want to serve the whole person or any person other than themselves. But right after Jesus tells them, hey, you can't be like that. You got to learn to serve because I didn't come to be served but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. Immediately they leave. And they come to the city of Jericho, and verse 46 of Mark 10 says that there was a blind beggar named Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus. He was sitting by the road, and when he heard that it was Jesus the Nazarene, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Can I add a detail here? Jesus is literally days away from giving his life on the cross. Boy, I tell you what, I mean, there's nothing more important than that. There's no time that we could think, hey, Jesus, now's the time for you to think a little more about you and not so much about anybody else. You've got to get prepped. This is a big deal. This is an important thing you're about to do. This is a big sacrifice you're about to make. Of all those sacrifices, this is the big one. And Jesus could have just ignored the man. It seemed like other people thought that Jesus should ignore the man. Many were sternly telling him, be quiet. But he kept crying out all the more. Son of David, have mercy on me. Have compassion on me. Because this guy knew that the thing that drove Jesus was just that. His compassion. His mercy for other people. That's why he did all that he did. And he wasn't wrong. Jesus stopped. And he said, call him here. So they called the blind man, saying to him, Take courage, stand up. The man threw aside his cloak, and he came to Jesus, and Jesus said, What do you want me to do for you? What do you want me to do for you? How can I help? Jesus, 
the Son of God, to a blind beggar said, blank check, man. How can I help you out? Jesus wasn't driven by all the things that too often drive my own service, I think. Being self-absorbed, self-important, self-centered. See, whenever you're that way, there's always going to be a limit to how much you're going to show up or who you're going to show up for. By the way, some of us are good at that. We're good at serving certain causes or certain people. We're going to defend certain things or fight for certain things. But then others are like, no, no, no. We demonize. We neglect. We say, ah, no, I'm not doing that. I'm not going to show up for them. I'm not willing to make sacrifices for that person or for that thing or for this situation. No, no, no. I'm not going to suffer personal loss for that. I don't care about that person, period. So I'm not going to serve any part of definitely not the whole of them. What can I do for you? That's the words of a servant. It's the words of a servant who looked through the eyes of compassion and not compassion that was driven by Jesus' own pain, which is so often our own compassion. We feel compassionate toward those who we kind of resonate with. That wasn't really what drove Jesus' compassion. The thing that drove Jesus' compassion was what he prayed in the garden that night. Whenever he could have said, you know what, I'm not showing up tomorrow on Calvary. I'm not going to the cross. That loss is too much for me to suffer. I'm not going to give my life on the cross. I'm not, look, I know people need the hope and they need transformation and they need their, their sins to be paid for and all that stuff. I'm not, I'm not going to serve those. I've given a lot of things to them, but I'm not going to take care of that. No, I can't do it. Jesus held on to his compassion, was driven by his compassion all the way to the cross because he said, not my will, but your will be done. And if we're ever going to be compassionate people who serve the whole needs of our friends and neighbors and family members and brothers and sisters in Christ, if we're ever going to be people who are willing to suffer whatever loss it takes to show up and provide what people need, if we're ever going to be servants like Jesus, it's got to come from there. Compassion rooted in our submission to the goodness of our God and Father who loved us and had more compassion on us and more mercy toward us than we could ever possibly deserve, who served us in every way and always does and always will. The Son of Man did not come to serve excuse me, do not come to be served, but to serve. A few days ago, um, whenever Steve and I went down for him to move, uh, I went and visited a couple of sisters that um, Joan, um, Joan's husband Tom passed away this year. And Ashley is Joan's daughter. Um, and we were just sitting, talking, sharing memories, talking about Tom. And as they were talking about how to move forward, in life in general. It was interesting all the things they weren't talking about. They didn't talk about their finances a single time. They didn't really talk about much about themselves. They were asking me how I was doing, what was new with me. And then they reflected on their time. Tom was really sick. He had cancer and uh, like he had a port in his stomach to be able to eat, you know, by the end. It wasn't eating. It was just an injection of nutrients, basically. And as they talked about that, they didn't talk about it with any kind of frustration or even regret uh, other than the loss of their loved one. They just talked about how it grew them. 
how it made him learn to serve. Nobody gave him credit for it. All the way they cleaned him up and fed him and took care of him and dressed him. and They just did this quiet stuff every day that I guess nobody except the Lord will really ever know about. I love what Ashley said, though, uh, in that conversation. I guess it was simple. Maybe it's more profound in the moment than it is now, but I'll say it anyways. She was talking about all that service and all the work they did and all the sacrifices they made, which didn't seem like much to them, but it was. She said, you know, all the stuff we've learned the last few months, I just don't want to go back. I don't want to go backwards. I want to keep being more of that. That's my hope and prayer for all of us. I don't know if you've been much of a servant recently or ever in your life. Maybe you're serving a lot. I know so many of you really are. I hear about those stories. I know about them. I love them. I'm inspired by them. I want to be more like you. But I don't want us to go backward. I want us all to go forward. To go forward with Jesus, who went all the way to the cross, into the grave, and then to the throne. I want that for us, too. That's really living. It's to follow Jesus. To live a life not to be served but to serve. And you might say, well, I can't give my life as a ransom for many. I know, not really. You can't pay the penalty for people's sins. But you can buy some people back from the selfishness of this world. Your deeds of kindness and goodness and compassion and sacrifice can point some people to the one who did give his life as a ransom. And you can save them. God help us in that. Father in heaven, We praise you for the ways that you've always served us and met our every need. Thank you, Jesus, for showing up for us and suffering every loss imaginable, ones that, honestly, we don't even understand at all. Thank you for paying attention to each one of us and addressing every need that we have in just the perfect way. We know we don't deserve it. We've disrespected you. We've neglected you. We've dishonored your sacrifices for us and your service to us. But because of your great mercy and compassion, you keep on loving us. And we praise you and thank you for that. And we pray that you'd aid us every day to follow in your footsteps, to not seek to be served in our homes, on our jobs, in our communities, and as brethren in this congregation. We don't want to be served, but to serve and to give up our lives even as you gave your life up for us. Father, go with us. Fill us with your spirit every day and strengthen us. In Jesus' name, amen.